the opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. From the highest point of Florida State's campus and the hottest room in Seminole Sports, this is Tomahawk Talk. Wherever you may be and however you may be listening, we are streaming live on wvfs.fsu.edu and are also on air locally on 89.7 FM here in Tallahassee, Florida. If you'd like to call into the show, feel free to dial us up at 850-644-3871. And as always, if you miss this show or any other future shows, you can always go back and listen to us on the Tomahawk Talk podcast, available anywhere you get your podcasts at. This is your host, Gabe Tisness, and I'm glad to be back in the station. Tallahassee's in full swing with its beautiful weather. It's such a such a privilege to be walking the, the, the streets, the campus, the whole shebang. But it's also good to be inside the station with my great friend and co-host, William Haynes. William, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Gabe. It's a great time of year. We are just a couple short days away from the start of the Major League Baseball season. I cannot be more enthused. I've got my Tampa Bay Rays shirt on in the studio here tonight, and I'm excited for, really, in my mind, the most improbable run in the history of sports is set to begin its next chapter, which is the Tampa Bay Rays hunt for a World Series championship. The hunt for another World Series championship. That would their be first their in first? franchise history. Oh, there you go. Tampa trying to get back to their winning ways, but there's a lot of other teams that are also trying to get to that that final spot. So we'll get into that in the, the second half of the show, of course. And uh, also rounding out the panel today, we have our veteran Jackson Bikich, who's much eager to watch some golf this weekend. You know, I'm just very excited. How, how are we doing, Gabe? I appreciate you having me on. Yes, sir. Um, I'm just very excited uh, to get my my work done for the week, you know, and then from Thursday until Sunday, just doing absolutely nothing but watch people hit golf balls with metal sticks into a hole like that 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 sounds like the best four days of my life and it just happens to be at the most beautiful golf course in the world so uh extremely excited to be watching the masters and probably watch tiger woods wearing red on sunday uh there's no better feeling in the world than that so really excited and if i was if i was doing any better after this weekend i'd be dead i'll tell you that Will you be wearing a, a red polo on next Monday? You know, I le- I let Tiger do that. Okay. You know, that's 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 his thing. It's not mine. I'm not a I'm not a shirt biter. You know, but uh, yeah, I'm really excited to watch. <laughs> Sweet. And rounding out the panel in his second appearance on the show is Noah Hearing. Noah, what are you looking forward to this week? Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on again. Of course. Um, unlike Jackson, um, I'm not a big golf fan, <laughs> but like William, I'm excited to. Um, watch the MLB kick it off, and I'm a Rays fan too, so of course I'm not going to speak too soon, but I'd like to see them go all the way as well um, and catch some more uh, FSU uh, FSU baseball this week. Will you be at the spring game by any chance? Uh, I'm going FSU? to the spring game. There you go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be exciting. That sure will be exciting. And uh, as always, shout out to Scott in the production booth. He's always doing something that we have no idea about but it's always helping out the show <laughs> so thank you scott for all that you do um but yeah let's get into the show we we have a lot to talk about as always and starting out with fsu news we have some rather tragic ones i would say with mark Recorian, the fsu women's soccer coach uh stepping away very much out of the blue there was no signs that this was happening um every single fsu beat writer was caught off guard uh i believe it was on tuesday or no, sorry, last Monday, a week ago, um, yeah, Mark Kerkorian emailed 15 members of the Tallahassee media 
um, to inform his departure from campus. And um, and the email was very, very much brief and, and vague. Uh, it was not how usually coaches go out. They usually go out with some sort of media report from, from the Seminoles.com website. And um, yeah, he took it very personally to, to send it out to these 15, 15 media members. And um, he stated that there was no concern over money. That was not the issue. He's already paid the most by any 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 means in, in the college game, uh, at least on the women's side of things. And he was due for a raise after winning the, the national championship this past year. But even then, it seemed like there were some off-the-field uh, issues with, you know, the new president, uh, Alfred, and so uh, of Seminoles Athletics. So there's a lot to unpack here, but at the same time, there's a lot that we don't know for sure. So there might be a little bit of speculating here. William, what are some of your thoughts on, on what happened? Well, well, first of all, first of all, this is a, a strange time in Florida State Athletics. The second women's program at this university is losing their fearless leader in as many weeks. Steve Se- or, or Sam Semerow stepping down and retiring from the women's basketball team. And now we have Mark Kerkorian of the soccer team stepping away. And uh, really his legacy that he left at Florida State cannot be understated. In 17 seasons, he won three national championships, made the Final Four, the College Cup, in 11 of his 17 seasons. That's really an unprecedented level of success. He coached over his career 31 All-Americans, 40 players that he coached, ultimately went on to play professional soccer at some point, including in the highest levels, the National Women's Soccer League, uh, and so forth. And you talked about it. Um, he, he's the highest paid coach in, in college soccer, or was $450,000 a year, as that information, of course, is made public. He stated as well that FSU offered him a raise. They were going to pay him even more money to stay, and he said in a statement that uh, it wasn't about money. That wasn't what was driving his decision. And uh, as well as you mentioned, just a curious process. Not often do you see a coach with a legacy like his that, that brought this school three national championships. And instead of kind of doing the normal thing where, where Seminoles.com releases the press release and, you know, he comes to the, the, the Dunlap Club, club and, and says a, a, a few words. No, he just he, he wrote an email and he sent it to members of the Tallahassee media <laughs> that covers the team. And I think it's it's fairly uh, reasonable to connect the dots and say that there there was some kind of um, frustration there. I mean, it wasn't you know, this is not a clean break. This was something that was unexpected and and kind of came out of nowhere and caught a lot of people by surprise. Even some of the players uh, released a statement saying that they were kind of surprised and disappointed with his resignation and was upset about him leaving. Um, you know, you can speculate all you want about how the funding is directed, and there there was uh, concerns, I believe, from him about how you know the, the soccer program was getting money for certain things. Um, but but this is a, a pretty sizable blow to clearly the best soccer program in the country. Yeah, this this team lost a couple of players, not not too many, thankfully, but there was definitely a loss of extreme ta- talent. And now you lose Mark Corian, the the head of all soccer related, you know things <laughs> and yeah you just ask yourself how can this team rebound from this it just seems like it's it's not probable it's 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 going to be extremely hard and uh, it's just interesting how the players and, and even mark has had to be kind of silent and just beat around the bush when it comes to all this and um, i'm curious to like actually know why this is the case because i think fans deserve to know but for now it, we'll just have to continue to kind of speculate no I mean, how do you feel about this? And, and just losing, you know, Sue Semra and now Mark Akoyan in one week, it seems like a lot's been happening in the FSU athletic side of things. I mean, we don't even we don't even have to talk on, on football and how they've been getting a lot of upgrades and stuff. So how does this all seem to 
come together? That's, that's a great question. Um, you know, I just keep thinking about next year. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what it's going to look like for us, but um, you know, we'll figure it out. And it is, it's just, it's new and confusing still. So, Jackson, did you want to add something? Well, yeah. I mean, when when it comes to college athletics and, and college uh, spending, we all know that that basketball and football, not respect, not respectively. Um, it's football and basketball that's going to bring in the most money. Um, so football has been on the decline. They've been behind um, in terms of recruiting, in terms of uh, facilities. You know, they finally just got that new locker room. They haven't had an upgrade since 2014, at, right after they won the national championship. Uh, so it kind of comes down to this idea of, as an AD, what's your philosophy going to be? Because you have to have a successful football program. You have to have a successful football program um, in order to have successful programs elsewhere in uh, your college program. So it comes down to, and I know it sounds cliche, but it comes down to finding that balance of, well, you have to improve on football in order to improve on all these other um programs because football success is their success because that's where the money's coming from but at the same time it's just terrible timing in terms of you know Florida State just won a national championship uh but the idea that they couldn't scrounge around money to uh you know give some of the things that Krikorian is you know allegedly asking for I find that a travesty I, I think Florida State should have learned from um when they didn't give Jimbo what he wanted uh right before he left and it's kind of history repeating itself so it's it's a, it's such a shame i mean the, the fact that you walk into that complex and you don't have any sort of jumbotron any sort of you know instant replay or, or anything that can actually like give the fans a better idea of what's going on in the field if they were to miss a play or the, the atmosphere in, in that stadium is just non-existent the, the fans bring it all they, they can but at the same time like the only thing they do is play the 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 talk and chop or the 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 song the war <laughs> chant the war chant yes and uh in the corners and whatnot and it's just not the best atmosphere let's just say but even then the, the players bring it all the, all they can and, and i think they absolutely deserve more than more than what they have so it's it's definitely a shame but you know that's how the cookie crumbles sometimes and like you said at jackson this is a business they they're here to make money and, and if this is their philosophy then we'll see how it goes but it's I, I don't know how I would feel as a player or even as a fan or as a coach. You consistently win, and then you somehow don't get any reward for it. It's just it's tragic. But in some other news, we, we hinted at the fact that Susemura is no longer with the women's basketball team, and the replacement is none other than Brooke Wyckoff, who was in the interim head coach the past year when uh, Susemura had a leave of absence. So she's back, back in charge, and she used to be quite a great player, she was named the 2001 All-American for FSU, and yeah, she's 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 a great basketball mind. Um, she's been kind of understudy under Sue Samra, so um, we'll see if she kind of keeps things as they have been for the most part. But um, maybe she'll bring some new things to the women's basketball team. William, is there anything else that we need to touch on 
I, I think it's always a good thing when you can keep a coach in-house. There's no question that she's beloved, not just by the current team, but really everyone involved with Florida State Athletics. Of course, I mean, she did a, a really honorable job in the 20. 20- uh, 2020-21 season uh, in the interim and uh, she's got some great re- recruiting connections in her native state of Ohio as well so when you can pull players from different parts of the country I think that's an interesting thing to keep an eye on as the program moves forward and um, there, there's no doubt that the program is still in, in good hands. Another program that's in pretty good hands I would say is the FSC baseball team who you know they've been ranked number not number five nationally for a little bit but this past week there were there were a couple issues you would say right William? It was it was a horrible week. They they came in, you know, regarded as a, a top five, top ten team in the nation, depending on the publication that you looked. They have an zero and four week, and now they find themselves twentieth uh, in the country, and, and is dropping quickly. This was a team that had a, a really a red hot red hot start to the season with some of the lighter competition that they had on the schedule. They they played a, a four four games against ranked teams this week. They go zero and four. They had a six to three loss against the Gators in Jacksonville on Tuesday, and then they got swept at home against the Notre Dame Fighting Irish uh, this weekend. And <clears throat> outside of Parker Messick, who has been dominant the entire season, even the things that have been going well for this team uh, is taking a back seat. Yes, all, all the starting pitchers still have an ERA under four, but I, w- I would say there none of them are pitching at the mark that they used to be. Carson Montgomery allowing five runs on Tuesday. Um, on, on Friday night, Parker Messick, one of his best starts of the year, eight innings shutout, 11 strikeouts. Gets a no decision because the team couldn't put up any runs. They lose two to nothing in twelve. Uh, another Scalero uh, issue where they have to have him go, you know, basically three innings because the offense can't scratch any runs across, and and he gives up a home run that that ultimately uh, decided that game. They lose five to four on Saturday. They had a four-two lead through seven, so they were in, in the driver's seat, and then they they pass it off to the bullpen, and and another Scalero loss where he can't hold on. Uh, to a lead, and then a nine to seven loss on Sunday, uh, where Ross Dunn really, and in, in his last couple times out, uh, has been hammered. Five innings, gives up six runs and a couple of homers. Um, th- the offense is in a slump. I mean, Terrell, he's zero for his last seventeen. Carry on, five of his last thirty-three. Robert, seven of his last forty-two. So, uh, any anything that you look at, the starting pitching, the bullpen, the offense, where is it? Uh, they need to get it figured out in a hurry. I mean, you would think that with such a abysmal fall of competence that this is just not the team that we usually see right but is that the case Mr. No hearing yeah I I agree with um with William you know we started off strong and we were ranked high and you know you can make the case about you know the teams we played weren't necessarily you know the best and now we're playing real teams um but you know you touched on the the bullpen a lot and I just wanted to add you know um that yeah, the batting averages are dropping, but it just seems like we could, the the Knolls just couldn't make the play when whenever they got people on base, they couldn't make the play. They you know they're hitting the ball still, but it seemed like every time someone was on base, they weren't able to make the play and you know score a run with those guys that were on ba- on base, and we left a lot of people out there. Jackson. You know, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. I like to say, um, I think if Florida State, if if they have a losing record. Within the next, you know, seven to ten days, I'm 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 trying to include the Jacksonville Stetson, and then um, the Georgia Tech series. Uh, if they do better than 500, they're fine. But if they go below 500 in those what five games, that sound about right? Yeah, they got five this week. Yeah, five this week. Uh, anything worse than three and two, um, panic button immediately. Uh, but anything better than than two and three. 
they should be fine. Uh, they have not lost a series until this Notre Dame series, and they were close in two of them. Um, well, really three of them. Uh, and you can argue that they should have. They should have probably won the first two. Um, but I, I'm not. I'm not giving up on them yet. I mean, they're six and six in ACC play. Granted, they're five games above 500 overall, but the ACC play is really what what bothers you. And, and a Notre Dame team that yes, they are a legit, you know, top 15, top 10 team, depending on how you want to look at it. The guy they threw on Friday has better numbers uh, than Parker Messick right now, which is hard to believe. But this is a very good conference when it comes to baseball. The, the rankings that just came out today: Virginia, they're up to number three in the country. Miami is up to eight. Uh, Notre Dame up to 13, and, and across the bottom as well. They're playing a Georgia Tech team in Atlanta this weekend that just recently fell out of the top 25. So uh, the, all we have is a track record of this squad against uh, you know top-ranked teams, and it, it has not looked very good, and I, I have trouble believing that it's going to be any different moving forward. Yeah, we shall see how they do this week. Um, but we have to kind of shift gears into March Madness because it is now April, hard to believe, but March Madness is still on its last legs with the last game, the most important one of them all tonight in a little bit. But before that, we have to talk about the final four with UNC and Duke. Of course, the premier matchup that was on Saturday night with Coach K in his last game, it, he they did not deliver. It was sad to see him, you know, kind of peace out of college basketball for that matter. But at the same time, he, <laughs> he had an interesting handshake after the game with uh, one of the UNC players, so that was an interesting meme. Um, but getting back to the game, it was a back and fair affair, affair. And you know, with 18 lead changes in the last couple of minutes, it was cardiac to say the least. And I'm not the biggest March Madness guy. I've said this already, but for you know Coach K to leave that way, it is heartbreaking to say the least. It's insane <laughs> when when you talk about this rivalry. One of the best rivalries in sports. UNC spoiled Coach K's home finale in Cameron Indoor, and he sent Coach K packing and, and the rest of his team in the Final Four. So Hubert Davis, in his first year uh, directing the ship in Chapel Hill, I mean, what you talk about adding the fuel, adding fuel to the fire uh, to, to in this rivalry. UNC has done just that. Yeah. Um, Jackson. Yeah, I just thought you, it was. You're wearing a UNC hat, so yeah. <laughs> tell us how you feel. I'm I'm going Tar Heels all the way tonight, baby. You know, I I think UNC has been a a battle tested team all season. Um, I don't even think they were ranked for a majority of the year. Uh, it wasn't until later in the season they started to pick up steam. Kind of reminded me of like the uh, 07 New York Giants. You know, the New York Football Giants, them biting at kneecaps before Detroit was. Uh, <laughs> but you know, kind of just getting hot at the right time, and uh, Kansas hasn't been battle-tested the way I think UNC has been. Um, but that Duke-UNC game, it, it definitely lived up to the hype. It was a very entertaining game. Um, I respect Coach K. I, I respect the career that he's had, but I'm glad he's gone as someone who's a fan of a team that's in the ACC as well that's not Duke or UNC. Uh, it's Florida State if you guys didn't, if you guys didn't pick up on that. Anyway, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, did you catch any of the games on, on Saturday night? Yeah, so I caught the UNC Duke game. Um, like you said, you know, the 18 lead changes, that was intense. Um, and it was it was really back and forth. I didn't know, you know, who was going to win. Duke definitely put up a fight. It was really just who was going to make the mistake at the end. Um, 
and you know Caleb Love had 22 of his 28 uh, points just in the second half alone, um, and you had guys like R.J. Davis, you know, helping 14 points in the first half. Um, and Duke is they're the team that messed up. You know, they missed a couple free throws at the end, uh, missed three pointer, and you know UNC ran with it. William, what was the the UNC record for FSC this season? Remind me again. Did we did did FSU beat them? I think we beat them once. Yeah, yeah. I remember we were one of the there only teams to have beat multiple victories against uh, teams in the Elite Eight, which uh, is kind of interesting when you look at the way that that season had gone. Um, and as Noah had mentioned, the way that things really broke in the direction of UNC this time last week when we were previewing the game, I was thinking that. Uh, Duke was just so hot. They were playing so well as a team. I thought they were one of the hungriest teams that I had seen in March Madness. And and Mark Williams, their dominant big man, only plays five minutes in the first half. Foul trouble was a problem really for both sides. But having him out, uh, even though they led at the half, I thought was uh, a pretty interesting story. Um, Baycott and Manic, the bigs for UNC, they were dominating. I didn't think they would be able to do that. And, and uh, UNC really dominated the, the rebounds uh, category, which was huge. And... Duke, the three-point shooting and the free-throw shooting, particularly at the end, is what cost them. And when when Duke couldn't make the shot, when they couldn't get get the, the free shot, UNC was just hitting deep threes out of their mind. That Caleb Love three towards the end of the game, I mean, that's that's a shot, as they said on the broadcast, that's going to be remembered for a long time. Yeah, I think that's the winner right there. I mean, it's kind of like the, the Kyrie shot, if you will, Jackson. You know, William and guys, we, we talked about this pre-show. Uh, the Orlando Magic, they're, they're going to have a lottery pick, obviously. They're I think they are the worst in the league. They're definitely the worst in the Eastern Conference. Uh, we can talk about basketball, NBA basketball later on. But Bancaro, I, I think, is a such a complete player. I think he's really a player you can you can build your NBA roster around. Um, I don't know. Obviously, no one knows where the Magic are going to fall. Uh, but in the mock drafts that, that I've seen, they were they were number one. They're probably going to pick Holmgren from Gonzaga. Uh, I don't necessarily like that pick. I think they should definitely go with Bancaro. You know looking past the off the court issues but um ben Caro, he was he was like some of our notes say here ben Caro was brilliant in the game uh in that final four matchup and I, I think he'd be a great addition to a team like the orlando magic that needs someone to uh, get them on the up and up you're kind of talking about you know how unc has been battle tested yeah kansas on the other hand they're the last number one seed they have had a pretty good run so far and you know they didn't have any issues against Gonzaga so it's going to be you know uh, I think Kansas is the favorite wouldn't would we all agree on that except for maybe Jackson I mean it's it's the one versus eight I think I definitely I don't even know what Vegas has the line at but it's uh, four in favor of the Jayhawks right now yeah and that makes sense I mean they're number one seed they've had a solid year um in a solid conference the uh the tournament hasn't necessarily showcased that but uh, a lot of good teams in that Big 12. Um, but I'm picking UNC just because I think they've, they've gotten hot at the right time. So, uh, yeah, battle-tested. That's that's the two words I'm, I'm putting out tonight, battle-tested. I think there's a lot of attention on UNC, and rightfully so, because of what they just accomplished, the, the entire run that they've had in this tournament they took out a number one seed in Baylor and which was an incredible upset and you know they send coach K packing in his final game um but you look at Kansas I feel like their win over Villanova was kind of slept on a little bit obviously overshadowed by that that Duke UNC game 
Um, Kansas with with a 16 point victory over a really good Villanova team. They opened the game with a 10 nothing run. Ojabi was hitting threes like crazy. He went six for seven from beyond the arc uh, overall in the game. And I don't Kansas, see that happening again though, William. And, and Kansas shot the lights out. I mean, uh, 54% from three, 50 basically 54% as well overall from the field. You can say maybe they they can't replicate that. That's fair. UNC does play really good defense. They've got some dominant big men. That that is an interesting matchup for Kansas. But I just think, um, you know, you can argue that maybe Kansas hasn't been battle tested. But I think at the, at the same time, you got to give them credit for steamrolling every team that they've played. You can only play. Yeah, that's totally play. fair. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm picking Kansas uh, to round out the March Madness. I I think. This is one of the best teams in the nation. They're usually in contention, and they haven't been able to get it done in the past couple of years, but this seems like their year to do it. William, what's your pick? Yeah, I'll ultimately take Kansas I for, for the reasons that I just mentioned, I, just the way Kansas shoots. Um, you can say Ojabi, that, that six for seven from three, and, and, and uh, what was it, uh, 21 points that he ultimately had in that game. They had another guy in McCormick that went 25 that's that that's hard to replicate but i think at uh, at the same time unc the game that they just played two days ago that's an emotional win that that took a lot out of them um i just think it's going to be hard i mean i know it's the national championship this is the biggest stage of the year but it's hard to get up game after game and, and kansas they, they were kind of coasting through through a lot of that game against villanova i think they're just kind of in better shape right now no what's your pick I'm going to go with uh, UNC just to even it out and also just represent the ACC. Um, and it's it's cool to see Coach Hubbard, you know, being his first year at UNC, just make such an impressive run um, in such a short amount of time. And like you said, Ojabi uh, with the six threes, I think um, Lakey Black, you know, he's a great perimeter defender. And if he can shut down Ojabi, I think that's going to be a big game changer. You know, I uh, was about to reference, because I thought you were going to pick Kansas, um, I was about to reference this poster that I saw in my fifth grade classroom, I still remember it, and it says, stand up for what's right, even if it means you're standing alone. <laughs> but thankfully, because of Noah, I'm not standing alone. So uh, those of you at home and listening, I'm shaking Noah Hearing's hand right now. So uh, we got it tonight. UNC's winning the, uh, the whole dang thing. Who is we? UNC, baby. You're not an FSU? Tar, Tar Heels all the way. No, right now I'm the biggest Tar Heel fan in the world. Roy Williams is, is the great. Roy Williams is the greatest coach to ever grace a basketball court. And uh, his predecessor, his, his, excuse me, his successor uh, will win seven national championships in five years. Mm-hmm. And the last number eight seed to win it all is number eight Villanova in 1985, who's been the only team to actually do it as a number eight seed. But with that, we will shift now into seminal segment with Ian Hughes, who's up next. But you've been listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State. Hello, everybody. My name is Ian Hughes, and I'll be giving you your uh, seminal sports update today. Let's get right into it. Uh, the third-ranked FSU softball team continued their incredible winning ways this season, sweeping ACC rival Virginia in their series in Charlottesville this weekend. The Seminoles won their three games by a combined score of 25-2, to only giving up two runs in the final 7-2 to contest yesterday. Ace Catherine Sandercock started things off stellar for the Knolls on Friday, pitching five scoreless innings while giving up only three hits en route to a 9-0 win in six innings. Kaylee Mudge's leadoff hits in all three games this weekend got the hitting going for the Knolls, and it just didn't stop as the Seminoles scored multiple runs in the first inning of every game. 
Danielle Watson improved upon Sander Cox Friday, throwing five scoreless innings as well while giving up only two hits. Brianna Enter and Emma Wilson gave up one hit each in relief on Friday and Saturday. And Sander Cox returned to pitch Sunday, giving up two runs on six hits while improving to 17-0 as a starter. The Seminoles as a whole improved to an astounding 35-2 and 10-2 in the ACC. They play the Florida Gators Wednesday in Gainesville before returning to Tallahassee for a series against the Virginia Tech Hokies. And moving into the world of volleyball, the fourth-ranked Seminole Beach volleyball team had a successful weekend of their own, going 3-1 in the North Florida Invitational to improve to 19-5 on the season. Friday's doubleheader began with a 2-3 loss to number 18 Pepperdine, but everything was up Seminoles from there as they finished the day with a 5-0 win against the number 10-ranked Florida Atlantic University Owls, and then continued Saturday with a 5-0 win against University of North Florida and a 3-1 victory against the number 11 Georgia State. Uh, Anna Long and Raylan White played together for the first time against Florida Atlantic, winning both of their sets, setting up another successful pair for the Knolls to utilize going forward. The Seminoles only lost a single set against the Owls and three against Georgia State, dominating after losing a close match to start the weekend. The Knolls next play this weekend in Tallahassee in the unconquered Invitational against Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, LSU, and TCU. Well, that's it for your Seminole Sports Update. I've been Ian Hughes, kicking it back to Gabe and William in the studio. You're listening to Tomahawk Talk. Thank you so much, Ian, for that report. We are back for the second half of Tomahawk Talk with your hosts, Gabe Tisnes, William Haynes, Jackson Bakich, and joining us as always, Jack Oliaro, the man, the myth, the legend, joining us for a little bit of soccer talk as we do have to discuss the world of soccer, which, you know, so some of you may have heard, we had the World Cup draw on Friday, which is not small news by any means, but before we even get into that, the reigning European champions, Italy, they lost to North Macedonia 1-0. I mean, how do we even, like, talk about that? <laughs> like, before before that game, it, it was expected to be Portugal and Italy with a World Cup spot on the line, but Italy couldn't even get past North Macedonia, which left Portugal uh, with, the, with, the, with the playoff spot pre- basically unlock. Um, I mean, I'm still shocked. I will, I don't know if I'll ever really. This is almost like the U.S. not qualifying last World Cup cycle. That's how I'd compare it. It's atrocious. It might even be worse because you know the U.S. is not considered a world power in terms of uh, international football. But uh, you know, how, how do you how do you do that? How do you how? <laughs> Why did you do that? You know, it's just like <laughs> it's it's atrocious. They have probably the, one of the most unique resumes in the past four years where they not, they missed the World Cup uh, four years ago, mm-hmm. which was deemed a failure, as it should be in Italy. And it was deemed a failure when we, uh, we as the United States also missed it. So for them to then win the uh, European Championship, everyone thought, all right, Mancini's got this back and rolling. Um, Italy should be a sure lock to make um, the World Cup. They struggle in their group and don't get on top of it. And then, um, even if they were to advance past Macedonia, North Macedonia, sorry, it's the fact that they were in the position in the first place has to be questioned because how does that happen? How does a four-time world champion miss two straight World Cups, yet in the midst of it win a European Championship? It is something, something that probably hasn't even happened in normal um, in any other continent, not much less in the UEFA. Yeah, I mean the 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 addition of Roberto Mancini as the head coach definitely seemed to change things for Italy after the World Cup, the, the 2018 World Cup, where they missed it. Um, but, I mean, going from not making the World Cup to winning the Euros in the way that they did it, they were absolutely s- spectacular. And, and then coming into this World Cup, 
qualifying process. They were deemed as a, another dark horse for winning it all, and uh, they didn't even make it there. I mean, the the way that Italy has changed from such a defensive team to playing total football, it's it's pretty remarkable. I think it speaks a lot to um, the the world of soccer today. But at the same time, we see how <laughs> sometimes that's not enough, and I think it just speaks to how how incredible the sport is because. If this can happen, then, you know, the World Cup is going to be something else. And, you know, as we kind of talk about the World Cup, there doesn't seem to be a group of death right now. Uh, some people have argued that perhaps Argentina's or, or Spain and Germany's. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there's there's a lot of balance so far. W what do we make of, of these, you know, early moments in, in the World Cup thought process? Like you are saying, this is one of the most balanced uh, World Cup draws that we've seen in a while, but... Probably by the end of it, we will say, hey, there was a group of death and there wasn't. But um, in terms of the toughest groups, I wouldn't say group of death, but I think I, I talked to Jackson about this a week ago when it happened. We had different opinions on like our first two hardest groups, and it seems everyone I talk to, everyone has a different group, and everyone gives a good reason as to why that could be the tough group, except maybe group A, which has Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, and the Netherlands. But for me, it's uh, the hardest is group B, the one the United States falls in, uh, and that could be an argument made for and against it. But England... They're no slouch. Um, they lost the they, they lost the, the Euros a year ago. Uh, the United States worked hard, and they but they did make their way back in. Playing Ukraine is probably one of the scariest times to ever play Ukraine. Um, if they make for, it, if they make it, um, I, I should mention that Wales, Ukraine, or Scotland will fill that final slot in Group B. We don't know yet because of the incident happening in Ukraine at the moment. So we'll find that out, I believe, in June. Correct. But. Um, Wales is a scary prospect. You have Gareth Bale, probably a potentially his last World Cup, and they might even be regular, better than the United States on a regular day. Uh, Ukraine, obviously the political stuff. You don't want to play a team where the world is literally behind you. And then Scotland's just an interesting prospect because they're probably the one you'd want to play the most, but they're still a very solid side. And uh, playing against anyone in those uh, English Isles is probably uh, kind of a tough prospect for the U.S., and much less Iran, who is probably one of the more underrated teams going into this. Uh, who had a fantastic uh, group, uh, group stage during their uh, Asian qualifying. So for me, that is the toughest, along with Group G, uh, which has Brazil, who is the clear favorite. And then you have a, pretty much a shootout between Serbia and Switzerland, who were in the same group four years ago. And then Cameroon, who's also kind of a wild card. Yeah. Jackson? My group death is, has to be E. Uh, you have a national power in Spain. You have a... a um, Tough out in Costa Rica, assuming they win, but who knows about the Netherlands? You never know. Uh, Germany, obviously, they, the winner of the 2014 World Cup. Uh, I don't believe they made it out of the group in 18. They didn't, but uh, there is a World Cup curse where if you win the World Cup, <laughs> that is you true. advance out of the group stage, and that has happened since I've been born in 02. That's true. Every, uh, every, person, every team who's won the World Cup has failed to get out of the group stage, except for Brazil in 2006. Yeah, we were talking about that pre-show. Brazil has made like 11, made it out of the group stage, I think like 11 straight times. It would be hard Same to thing with Mexico. They didn't, uh, they um, World Cup finals, so. But then you also have Japan in that group. Uh, Japan's a really uh, underrated team to the international side, but let's just talk about how lucky of a draw it is for the U.S., and I know you're saying it's your group of death, but I'm talking about in terms of uh, Group A, because mm -hmm. the winner of Group B plays the second-place team in Group A and vice versa. Um, so to have group or to have your first round of 16 game, um, if you're the U.S., 
Probably playing the Netherlands. Probably playing the Netherlands. Probably being second in the group. I think the U.S. wins the group, honestly. I think they go undefeated with a tie to England. I, I think England's a little... They, le- they <laughs> a learned their lesson in 2010. I think um, they're going to come in guns blazing and not run past the U.S., but I think run away with that group pretty handily. See, I think they don't learn their lesson. I think the whole time they were like, oh, the blokes just call it soccer, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't I don't think... I think England's going to have a pretty cocky attitude still. Uh but just how lucky of a group, or how lucky of a draw that is for the U.S. post-group, the assuming that, they make it. If the U.S. could win that group, and then Netherlands does their job and win their group, you could maybe see the United States go to the quarterfinals for the first time since 2002. You have the options of Qatar, Ecuador, Senegal, but um, maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves. But, again, I still think Group B is a very tough outing, and you can't look overlook not only England, but Iran, and potentially one of those three other European playoff teams. The U.S. would be playing England the day after Thanksgiving, which is also the day where FSU and UF usually play. So that'll be a, an interesting rivalry day for sure. Um, I, I agree with, with Jackson in, in terms of, hey, playing the Netherlands in the first round is not the worst matchup in the world, especially considering you'd probably need a, some sort of tie or, or good results uh, in general for, for the group stages. So if the U.S. can somehow pull that off, you know, a game against the Netherlands, that's that's something you, you kind of have to ask yourself. If you really want to become a soccer powerhouse, then you need to be able to beat one of the better teams. And, you know, the Netherlands, they have a lot of talent, but they also didn't really do great in the last Euros. Um, somebody that did do really good in the last Euros was England, who made it to the final, but also lost in the final, similar to how France made it to the Euro final in 2016 and then won the World Cup in 2018. So I'm not saying England's going to win it. Uh, because they're not the favorites. Brazil, France are currently the favorites. Um, but another team I'm really hyped on is Spain because they have the wonder kid himself, Pedri, from Barcelona. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I'm so happy to see him in the World Cup. Um, but also, Group C, Argentina, Saudi Arabia, Mexico, and Poland. I think that is a really tough group for the other two, for the other three teams. I think Argentina is going to blaze through that. But Mexico, they're not a tough out, and they haven't been their best selves recently. But without the expectations and the pressure that they usually carry, I think they can, you know, put up a fight against Poland, who have Robert Lewandowski. So it'll be interesting to see Lewandowski against Messi when they get to shine in, in November. That will be a really interesting um, match. But um, Eltree, I no matter the expectation, uh, you know, they were, there were grumbles about them even getting and qualifying, but they made it. So everything's going to come back to that elusive um, round of 16 match if they can get past it, and if they can get past this group. Argentina uh, obviously won the Copa America this past uh, this past year, um, but in 2018 they didn't really show up. And while they made it out of the group stage, it was a really, it was really lucky. Ed- it was a, it seemed to be a lucky performance. Uh, Croatia really put them um, put them in their place. But Argentina has seemed poised now more than ever. If this is the World Cup, this is they have the right things going for them. They finally have the monkey off their back and getting an international trophy. If anyone could make a run, it could be Argentina. So. Mexico could really try to make that run. They ha- really have to be Poland for that second spot, and then maybe go on from there and see what happens uh, with Group D. And how about our uh, maple syrup friends up to the north, Canada? What was, I think it's their first time making it since like '86. Mm-hmm. It's so, been a long time, and uh, um, they also ran away with. They also won the Concacaf group. So mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Any chance they get out of that group? What do y'all think? I. I actually really like their, their chances against Croatia. That's arguably their, their second-best competition. Belgium should probably cruise through it, even though they're kind of getting old. But speaking of old, Croatia is definitely old. They're going to lean on, I think, 36, 37-year-old Luka Modric, which is 
no slouch of a player by he's any still, means. He's still a maestro for Real Madrid. He's still a maestro, but at the same time, he's going to have to run a lot of ground, and I'm not sure if he's going to be able to do that because, you know, his, his partner in crime, Rakitic, is also like 35, so it's it's going to be really hard for them to, to make it past, you know, this Canada team who's full of youth, full of great ideas. So I, I think... Canada might be one of my sleeper picks to get out of the group stages. So. It feels like they could either like finish first in that group or have that uh, welcome back to the World Cup and then get pummeled and lose every game. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about six, seven months from now, so anything can happen between two. Injuries, too. That's another thing to keep an eye on throughout exactly. the uh, beginning of the upcom upcoming seasons. And, and my sleeper team is Ghana. Ghana is looking for the biggest revenge probably in World Cup history. I mean, Uruguay. yeah, against Uruguay, correct. And, uh, I still think, it, even though it's kind of disrespectful to the game, I still think it was a 100 IQ play by Luis Suarez. It was 100% the, right, the right play. I mean, he you got to. It's he does it, not regret that at all. Yeah, it was for his country, you know, and, and then maybe he uh, breaks the gentlemanness of uh, maybe it's against some sportsmanship, unwritten rules, but you know, it's the World Cup. It's kind of anything goes. Hand, it's like the hand of God part two, hands of God really. Uh, so, look out for Ghana. They're going on a, a revenge tour. Um, I'm excited to see. And South Korea, obviously, is a is a is a sleeper. Uh, so yeah, I picked I picked Ghana to possibly go. They'll they'll get out of the group, I think. There you go. It's, it's a bold prediction. I, I, I it'll. Portugal they're Uruguay. gonna be a tough out. They're gonna be a tough out. They're gonna be a tough out for sure. And you know. Last thing I'll say is Senegal. They're a pretty deadly team who's in the Group A, which is, as we've said, the, probably the easiest group because you have Qatar, the host nation, in there. Um, I think they might be the one team from Africa that I'm looking at to see if they make it out to possibly even the the, the quarters. Um, but obviously I'm going to be <laughs> hoping that the U.S. also makes it all the way there. Um, but with that, we can now shift gears as well into the world of basketball because – there's only about a week left of the regular season, and we haven't really talked enough about what's going on in the NBA these days. LeBron is old but still great, but unfortunately the Lakers are not <laughs> one of the main talking points these days. Instead, it's Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, Luka Doncic. Uh, the, the world of basketball has seen a, a new era of players come, and you know the MVP talk is quite hot these days, William. It is. It's really a three-man race right now, as far as most people are concerned, between Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and Nikola Jokic. To me, um, I would take Embiid out of the running in comparison to those two because his field goal percentage is almost 10% lower than the other two. Uh, right now he's at 49.3%. Uh, Giannis is at 54.4%, and Nikola Jokic is at 58.3%. Their, their numbers are all comparable, I think. Um, Jokic is behind in points, but he's, he's thir almost 14 rebounds a game, eight assists per game, and, and that amazing almost 60% from the field. He's having an historic season. He, he's single-handedly, like, right now trying to keep the Nuggets out of a play-in game. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about the you know, most valuable player, to me, it's Nikola Jokic. We have uh, Max Rundy now on the show as well, hopping in for a little bit of uh, NBA talk before we hit him in baseball. But, Max, just... Early thoughts on the MVP talk? I think building off of what William was saying, when it comes to who provides and who is uplifting their team the most, it's hard to make the argument against Jokic. I mean, if you look at the two, in my opinion, MVP voting has really shifted onto 
outside of the core statistics that you use, there's two statistics, like more advanced statistics as some people would say, that they really focus on. Player efficiency rating and win shares. Win shares is just like an estimate of how much you contribute to wins. Right now, Embiid, or sorry, Jokic leads the NBA in both categories. 32.9 PER, which is very good. He also led it last season when he won MVP. And right now, he's got a 15 win shares, which is, in comparison to Giannis and Embiid, Giannis has 12.4 and Embiid has 11.5. I mean, like you said, there's nobody carrying their team more right now. I just think it's so hard to not pick Giannis. I, I think if Giannis can urge his way, the Bucks' way, into having that number one seed, and the Nuggets fall maybe into that play-in, it's hard to say a team that might not even be making the playoffs has the MVP on it. And, of course, that's where you throw LeBron out there, too, but I think LeBron's pretty far behind. How would you compare Jonas's season to his MVP season from last year? Better. Better? Definitely better. I mean, and the big way you look at it is his efficiencies. His efficiencies on the floor are still remarkable, still top tier in the association. His three-point percentage, while it's not quite on Jokic's level, it's still very good. I mean, on 3.6 attempts, he's almost shooting 30%. I know that doesn't sound very good, but it is very good for him. But the big one is his free throw. This guy attacks the basket. He leads the NBA in free throw attempts per game. And to have him now shooting at 72%, he was in the high 50s not two years ago. Maybe maybe low 60s, but he's been in the low 60s for sure the past two years, and he's bumped it up by almost 9% just this one season. He's got to be the MVP. I really think that. Yeah, currently the Bucks are sitting third in the East with the Sony Sixers tied basically uh, on fourth. So uh, I think Embiid and, and Jonas are right up there, but I mean, it's hard to talk against Nikola Jokic. He's he's a master of all trades. So yeah, I'd probably go with Jokic because, like we talked about, we talked about the win shares. Um, but I I think the ultimate, um, unless you are scoring thirty eight points a game, which none of them are, right? Jokic is coming in at twenty eight, or excuse me, twenty six point eight points per game, thirteen point seven rebounds per game, and it's staggering eight assists per game as a big man. I don't know if we've ever seen a man like Nikola Jokic grace a basketball court. I'm being completely honest. Guy um, yeah, is—he's incredible. He's absolutely incredible. And that pick and roll—it doesn't matter who he's running it with. His ability to find uh, people down low on the pick and roll, or his ability to stop and pop. His passing ability is is similar to that of Magic Johnson in terms of of. Um, the weirdness of it. And the weirdness you're talking about is he doesn't only find players, he makes players yep. open. Players that don't even think they're open, he knows they're open and somehow gets it to them. It's something you never see. Yeah, he's incredible, does, honestly. Does Embiid have a nickname? Because we know we have the Joker, the Greek Chief, the Pro Trust process. the Process. <laughs> there you go. I would argue that, uh, yeah, Trust the Process is my pick. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I guess we can kind of now look into the baseball world because why not there's so much happening isn't there William yeah yeah Max let's take it away we're both big race fans we'll start with the division they take place in which is uh, the American League East I know this is something that we have a little back and forth it's going to be the most talked about division probably over the course of this season with the Yankees and Red Sox Uh, I'll start with mine first and then we can kind of bounce off of each other 
Um, I had the Blue Jays finishing first in the American League East. I think that the additions they've made while uh, continuing to rebuild, for my money, they've got the best infield in baseball. They add Matt Chapman uh, to play third base. So now you've got a situation where uh, Boba Shatter, Kevin Biggio can kind of focus on being a DH because neither of those are, are really premier defenders after you add, you know, really, for my money, the best third baseman in baseball in Chapman. Um, while they did lose uh, Robbie Ray, who was the Cy Young winner to Seattle, they did make some replacements. They traded for Barrios over the course of last year. They have Hyunjin Ryu, who was in the running for a Cy Young award. Alec Manoa, a youngster who's really good, and they, they made a, a couple of free agent signings as well. They've got, for my money, a great rotation, a serviceable bullpen, the best infield in baseball, and probably one of the better lineups uh, in the game as well. I, I think my issue falls in the pitching side and it's been the issue for the last couple of years last year they led all of baseball and batting average and ops like this is a very good hitting team but then you take away their best hitter outside of vladimir guerrero jr marcus Semyon is gone marcus Semyon was a vital bat in that lineup and you play some of matt chapman i love matt chapman matt chapman he's pretty good but his hitting numbers are on the decline there's no doubt about it i mean when you think about matt chapman william you think about a pretty good hitter. He had 27 home runs last year. It's pretty good. 210 batting average. 713 OPS. Neither one of those are really stellar. Neither one of those even come close to what Semyon was doing last year. But back to the pitching, I, I think this pitching staff slightly overhyped. I think Burrios is a very slight, I, I won't say mediocre, because I feel like mediocre has this like negative connotation with it. But like, he's very middle of the pack. He's a good two starter, maybe three starter, not an ace. He won't let you down, though. He's consistent. You know, Max, real quick, I want to jump in and agree with you just to argue semantics because I love arguing semantics. And I'm not even arguing with you, I'm agreeing, like I said just now. But you're right. The word mediocre. It's, it's supposed it, to mean me it, It's supposed to mean, yeah, it's supposed to mean above average. Yeah. And people assu um, associate okay. mediocre with uh, below average. But anyway, I'm sorry. I just no, want to no, agree no, with you I on that. I totally agree. It's always something I thought was weird, too. But Ryu is the interesting case here. I love Ryu. Ryu is a good pitcher. Ryu's coming off by far the worst year of his career. He's getting up there in age. He might be on the decline. He might be an okay pitcher for the rest of his career. This is coming off of what? I think two years ago he was like the third or fifth Cy Young player. I think he was second behind DeGrom. Second? Okay. He was, yeah, in the NL. But his first year in the AL, I think he came in like third or fifth. Okay. But either way, he's been very close before. I... Of course, if he bounces back, this is a good staff. My problem lies on Kevin Gosman. What do you think about Kevin Gosman? I, I, I don't know. You mentioned you know the worst season of his career last year. They bring him in. I, I just I think there's enough guys in the rotation where there's no there's no pressure on any one guy to, to be the guy. I think they've got enough guys behind him. They've also got guys in the system that are coming up. Nate uh, Nate Pearson is, is a guy that a lot of people have been talking about. There's a couple of X factors for Toronto as well that I think are interesting. There's reports that they are making a very, very strong push for Jose Ramirez huge of the Cleveland Guardians. I think, he, you know, already the best infield in baseball. You add him, basically, uh, one for one, I would take him potentially over Marcus Simeon if they're able to get him. Uh, they would have to give up a lot. But then also, they're playing back in Toronto in front of full fans for the first time in a couple years. I think there's a lot of energy around this team. We've seen, you know, those big playoff games, what that crowd can do uh, to that team. There's also the, the X factor of... Um, 
for the entire season and most likely for the postseason as well, visiting teams who have players that aren't vaccinated, those players are not going to be able to – they can't travel. They can't cross the border. Uh-huh. Uh, so you look at teams like the Yankees and, and such that, that are quality teams that are competing for the division but maybe missing some of their key players, that's a story to keep an eye on as well. One of the greatest home field advantages we've seen in a long time. You look at the, the second-place team for my money, our, our Tampa Bay Rays. They won 100 games a season ago. I, I cap them right at around 90 wins. I, obviously, they're always a team that can overachieve. That's basically what they've been doing the last decade plus. But the pitching depth is thin. They're missing their ace in Tyler Glasnow, who most likely is not going to pitch this year. And if he does, it's late September, October. I will say, I've heard he's a little bit ahead of schedule. Yeah, they did a different surgery. There's a new kind of Tommy John surgery that has a quicker uh, comeback time. So so we'll see, but obviously you never place uh, you know, a sizable bet on that. Shane McClanahan, the youngster, I know you like him maybe to win the Cy Young. He's the ace of the staff. You've got Corey Kluber behind him. He, he missed pretty much all of 2020. He missed a sizable portion of 2021 as well. He's a guy that has won a Cy Young in his past. Uh, he, he's likely your number two. I don't like what's behind him. Shane Boz, I know a lot of people like. He's out until about mid-May with an injury. They've got Ryan Yarbrough, who struggled the last couple of years. His velocity's back up. Maybe he could be back to his former self uh, that, that he was, you know, back in 2018. And the bullpen, you know, when you look at 2018, um, when this run started, when they first won 90 games and they got back to the playoffs here later, this, for my money, is the worst bullpen that they fielded. In this era, I mean, Andrew Kittredge right now is your closer. Yeah, sure, he was an all-star last See, year. He pitched well, but what are the other guys behind who him? Who knows what Kittredge is? Kittredge might be the closer. Kittredge might throw three innings a night. For all I know, I swear this man used to be a starter. He's, so up, like, he's up in some games. So, sure. like, I'm really curious about how they'll use him. And you just got to trust the process with the Rays. I mean, think about all these injuries their bullpen has had over the past two years. And they've yielded the best bullpen in baseball both years. Yeah, if there's any team, I'm kind of uh, on the outside looking in here, but if there's any team that's two or three steps ahead, it's always been the Tampa Bay always Rays. Always the Tampa Bay Rays. And it doesn't make sense. And I'll give you this. This might be the, a slight down, a noticeable downgrade from last year's team. I have the utmost confidence they will win that division, and they will do so handily. Interesting. We'd love to see that. We're running a little bit out of time, so we'll speed things up. We'll just finish out the rest of the division. Obviously, the Orioles. I think we can just skip over the AL Central. <laughs> it's the White Sox. The Twins might yeah. jump in, but, like, it's the White Sox. Yeah, just to finish off the AL East real quickly, I think the Red Sox are due to regress. They they got gutted pitching-wise. Chris Sale is, is not going to start the year as well. The Yankees, some people like them. I think this is the year Aaron Boone gets fired. I, I think they're going to have, have uh, a hard time keeping up the pace unless they make some big moves, which people have been calling for for a long time with their general manager. So I think the Blue Jays take it. You think the Rays take it. Uh, I, I think they're both very good teams, and it's going to be fun to watch them go um, back and forth over the course of the season. You mentioned the White Sox with the American League Central. I think they've, they've got a ceiling of, of 100 wins. They did have a couple of losses uh, on the pitching side, some injuries, and they just traded away. Uh, Craig Kimbrell to the Dodgers. So it does change how they're viewed a little bit. But as you mentioned, the rest of the AL Central is incredibly weak. I think the Twins adding Correa makes them a little bit interesting. Uh, you know, D- Detroit is on the way up, but they're not they're not there yet. And Kansas City is kind of playing a weird in-between where they're they're trying to win now, but they don't have the guys. Uh, so I, I'm in agreement with you that the, uh, the White Sox are going to take that. The American League West, really quick. <laughs> this is interesting to me. I think the Seattle Mariners by season's end is going to be the story of the year. I think they break the longest playoff drought active in North American sports, and I'm even picking them to represent the American League in the World Series. I think 
it's a bold pick, and I, I love the pick. I really do. I, I think the Mariners have made some good decisions. I, I really wish they landed Chris Bryant. That would have been a big, big bat to add to that lineup. But even without him, I think this is a really quality team. I don't see them winning the division. I think the Astros are just too good to all of our disliking. And I just think I just think the Astros have too great of a stranglehold on this division. And the Mariners are coming, though. The, the Astros are not a team built for the future. They're a team built for the now, and that's it. I think in two years, I agree with you. I think this year, we'll see it a little bit. Next year, they'll make the playoffs, maybe win the division. Year after, they're a genuine World Series contender. You're saying the Mariners are going to have a uh, Bengals type of run? Yeah, I, I don't think their turnaround's that bad. I mean, this team was pretty terrible the past two years. Not last year. They, they almost snuck into the playoffs. But two years before that, they were pretty bad. And now, they look like they have the brightest future in the AL West by far. The Mariners adding last year's Cy Young winner and Robbie Ray. They add a Winker and Suarez in a trade as well. They're looking pretty good. We'll we'll speed through the end at the National League really quickly. I think the Braves, um, they won the World Series last year. I think they're going to take that division. The Mets are in the running. They lost to Grom for at least half the season. Scherzer may not start the year as well, so I think uh, the Braves uh, probably have a stranglehold on that. The National League Central, for my money, may be the weakest division in baseball. I think the Brewers continue their success. And the National League West containing the best team in baseball. And the Dodgers, probably a team that everyone's taken to win the World Series. The Padres have been continuing to make additions. Maybe they finally get over the hump. Um, and then the Giants are, are kind of in the middle of the pack, but they won 107 games a year ago. So real quickly, Max, how do you see the National League shaking out? It's got to be the Dodgers. I mean, if the Dodgers don't go to the World Series this year, it's probably the most overhyped team, the most letdown of a season in sports history in my lifetime, at least. I mean, they, they, they have so much talent on both sides of the ball. It, it's really not even close. I mean, if the Dodgers don't even win the World Series, it's one of the biggest letdowns in sports recently so give me your world series pick as we close out i'm gonna go a bit homer here but i gotta pick the rays in the al they're just too good and i know they're not the best season team this year but you got such a good young team that's only gonna get better with time only gonna get better with time but like i said it it doesn't matter it doesn't matter and i love the mlb so much i love the 162 game format it's anyone's for the taking it's the Dodgers. It has to be the Dodgers. I'm in agreement. I'll take the Dodgers over the Mariners. The season starts this Thursday. We can't wait. And that'll do it for today's show. Uh, I mean, if, if there's one thing I learned today is that mediocre is actually a compliment. So, you know, there you go. <laughs> but for William, for Jackson, for Max, for Jack, for Noah, for Scott, for Kylie on Twitter, whole shebang of, of, of characters here in the station. But for myself, you've been listening to Tomahawk Talk on WVFS Tallahassee the voice of Florida State.